Welcome to How I Did It, where coders, philanthropy and social capital team find out how successful leaders do what they do in the world of philanthropy and social leadership. My guest in this episode is Lindsay Kane AM. Lindsay is a dynamic CEO running a dynamic charity called Royal Far West based in Manly. And Lindsay's also the current third sector CEO of the year. Really interesting talking to Lindsay. She is a very impressive leader and uh, you'll get that sense by listening to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Lindsay. How are you? Very well. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me over here. I saw on the way up it's uh, Christmas party day, so it's a big day. It's a big day. It's a yeah. big day. Surf's up out there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Although we haven't quite got the sun, but at least we haven't got the smoke, which is uh, is a big thing and a positive at the moment. Um, looking at the beach actually out of the window of your office reminds me, there's a great story to Royal Far West, and it started pretty much right there where we're looking down the beach now, if I'm, if I'm right. Is that right? That's exactly right. When you look down from here, and we can just see a swimmer going, a sole swimmer going in there now, um, go back to 1924. And a Methodist minister from Cobar bought um, a whole bunch of kids. He was responsible for the Far West Methodist scheme. Everyone who lived west of the Blue Mountains, this Methodist padre had this sort of uh, welfare responsibility for the families. And the kids all had sandy blight and um, there were tough conditions out there then, 1924, it was post-war. People were, the men were returning from the war, women were often on their own. Um, children were born in humpies and they weren't born in hospitals like where we get everything fixed now immediately as babies. So they were not well kids. And he'd been down to Manly Beach to convalesce before from surgery. And he said to his wife, Lucy, I know what we need to do. We need to bring the kids to the sea because in the absence of a health system out here, we've got to do something for them. Mm. So let them feel that ocean and the sea like I did feel so well when I had my gallbladder um, <laughs> surgery. So he bought a whole bunch of these um, motley kids in their one-piece woolen swimsuits that were, were made specially for them. They had a big FW on them so they wouldn't get lost on the beach. And... Uh, the local doctor who did his morning constitutional every day ran into them and asked who they were. He was curious. His name was George Moncrief Barron. Stanley Drummond had the kids with Lucy. And he said, how come you've come this far? What are you doing? And who is this crew of, you know, your kids have obviously got hair lips, congenital deformities, turned eyes. He's a scoliotic uh, person. What's going on? And he explained that outside in their territory in the outback, there was no health system. And the doctor said to him, well, Padre, that's no good, is it? Country kids deserve to be as well as any city child, and that fundamentally, David, is our essence. Mm. Every country child deserves to be as well as any city child, and let's see if we can do something about it. So they shook hands, and he said, the doctor said to the Padre, Padre, you look after their souls, and I'll look after their bodies. And in that handshake, that was the start of an honorary medical system that, that has now endured for nearly a century. It's a great, it's just a great line and a great story, it's isn't it? It's a great it? story. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, as you say, amazing heritage that's been built since then. Um, tell us a little bit about you, though, because um, you work in Manly, but you're, you're a Manly girl, really, aren't you? Well, I am. The great irony is that I come back to this as this will be my last um, full-time <laughs> gig as a CEO, I'm, I'm sad and happy to say. But I was actually born in Manly, which is actually very useful because mm. um, the Manly community is a great community. It's a very special community. So, you know, it takes mm. a long time to um, feel like you're a local. Right. So it's been very helpful when I came in here, originally only for three months, but to say, hello, I'm from Manly. I remember when I was a child having to give my 
share my Christmas presents with the Royal Far West. They were then the Far West How was that? Children's that? Telescope. I don't know many kids who like sharing the Christmas Well, presents. I wasn't too sure about starting here when I thought I have a childhood memory of <laughs> a tiny you, little bit of resentment. Did you come back to get the presents back? Um, yeah. yes. Yeah, so tell us a bit more about that and what life was like and your really connections to the community. Well, I came here just for three months and I had been... I had taken time off from the job I had before. I was a CEO of Netball Australia before that. And I decided after that I needed a good long um, holiday. So I walked the Camino to Santiago. And I got a call, would I like to come here for three months while I'm looking for their new CEO? And I said, yes, I'd love to do that. I'll come back from, uh, at the time I'd done the walk and I was learning German in Germany. So I came back for three months. And as soon as I walked in this door virtually, I thought, I know this place. I, Mm. I know this community. And I know the incredible story and legacy of this place, um, but it's not the vibrant place that it was in the first 50 years of last century. And I was presented with a challenge from the board when I said I I offered to stay a bit longer. Um, I said, you know, this place, I think you've got to make a really important call. It's 87 years old. You have to really seriously, strategically decide, do we close this down? and repurpose the assets for, for the next 100 years. For example, do we convert the place into a social policy unit, research and social policy unit for child rural health? Right. Or do we bring it back to its former glory of being a wonderfully dynamic service provider and capacity builder? And to be quite honest, um, I had a selfish thought, which is I'm not going to close an 87-year-old institution on my watch. <laughs> So why not have a red-hot crack at bringing the organisation back to its greatness if we can? Mm. And through my career, I have chosen to be a builder, Mm. not a maintenance person. Mm. So I love love the challenge of being given an an organisation that uh, can go to the next level and being at the helm of that. And in this case, uh, the board and I agreed that that I would stay and we'd see what we could do. I can see with your DNA, your community DNA, and then you, you know, your approach to things, being a builder, taking on a challenge and building and doing something, this would have been irresistible. But obviously you came in and things were um, not as, as they could be. Um, why do you think that was? How do, you, how do you not have a connection to Manly, for example, when you've been in Manly for 80 odd years? What, 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 what was happening? Well, it is, it is about leadership here in something like this. and. Um, our paradigm at the time, in um, it was 2000, mid-2011 when I arrived, the paradigm of the business earlier to that was as a responsible, generous um, service provider only. We had one model, mm-hmm. we had one program, mm-hmm. and we were giving the most amount of care we could with the most amount of commitment to the kids and families we were seeing. Yeah. But... Um, I'm a futuristic leader. I, I look to say, well, that's what we've got now, mm. but what should we be? Like, mm. what could these assets really be? And we didn't have that style of leadership at the time. We were doing really good work, mm. but we were doing it in, a, in what I saw as an old paradigm, an old right. model. The old model was um, many people coming to us. You can always come to Manly, we'll look after you, and we'll do really good works for you. Yeah. But When I was doing the assessment of the business, I said, you know what, that's an old paradigm. And to live and be a contemporary organisation, what we've got to be doing is we've got to be supporting families and children as close to home as possible. Now, that presents a really big challenge when you live in the middle of Manly. 
um, the fact that we don't serve any manly families, never have, mm. makes it very hard for the manly, or has made it hard in the past, for the manly community to connect to us because yeah, mums don't talk at tennis club about how good little Jack is. No one's had the experience themselves. They've, they've not got personally. that personal yeah. thing. Um, and we weren't telling the manly story, manly that story, but we also weren't at the time telling the rural communities the work we were doing. We were, mm. we were a bit bunkered in. Mm. And this old place that you can see from here when you look down on it, um, to the old building, that's an old polio hospital built, built in the 50s. So a lot of people would see that old brown building on the beachfront and it's very easy to imagine that there's old brown stuff happening inside. <laughs> um, and in the last years when we've done the transformation, it's, you know, it's been a secret, but people haven't known that behind those old walls is this incredibly innovative and dynamic business that's been building up. Um, so, so I said, well, I think we have to change that model. So let's see if we can't turn this around. Instead of the many people coming to us, let's turn it around and say, how do we go to the many? How do I bottle this? fantastic resource mm. I have here. It's now 90 paediatric specialists under one roof. How could I make their expertise available to families as remote as Burke and Cobar? And the furthest family we're serving today is in Fitzroy Crossing in, in West Kimberley. Right. So how do we do that? I went to um, my clinical people and I said, whatever you're doing face to face, can you do it on technology? So the, the principle there was, I'm gonna challenge them to think differently. So coming back to your question about how do you do that, the leadership was really important in this one. And mm -hmm. I had to be a big, bold, noisy leader who stood in front of uh, a mob of people who um, had been used to a different style of leadership, mm -hmm. very internally focused. I had to win their confidence. I had to tell them to get moving. Mm -hmm. I had to uh, ask some of them to find another career. Mm -hmm. Um, I had to be really bold because in order to get the Queen Mary turned around, <laughs> we had to get some movement. Bold and tough, I suspect. Um, yeah, okay, so then uh, y one thing we haven't said is, I think there's about 55,000 charities in Australia, and this year you're the third sector charity CEO of the year, right? Um, so I suspect that you'll be able to answer some of the questions I want to put to you now around how you, how you went into that position as a bold leader, how you dealt with the board, your stakeholders, the staff, those challenges you mentioned. And I want to start with, um, with something that I, that I think you have, which is a real clarity of mission. And I, and I, I, I see that as um, being part of an inspiring vision that you might have set out. How important was that, if I'm right, that, that that's something you, you focused on? Very, very right. Um, the, I say often, you know, clarity is power. If you know exactly what your aim is, your mission is, your purpose in life as an individual or the organisation, if you know what that is, then it's unequivocally clear to you and everybody else. And I think when you're a leader, it's very important for other people to see who you are and what you stand for. Mm -hmm. for, for me, there's nothing more frustrating than trying to follow someone who's exactly, not exactly sure. And that translates to uncertainty. And I don't mean... I don't mean confidence all the time. I mean, a real. for me, it's really important to be very transparent, very apparent to people, very present, um, and very clear on what I'm thinking. Sometimes I might say to people, I don't know what the direction is right now, but um, let's do this together. I, I'm, I'll lead, I'm fully accountable for the consequences here, but I want you to come with me and I want us to achieve, see if we can't get clarity a little bit further down the line. But in making that decision, you're still giving people cl 
clear direction and confidence. Yeah. One of the things I, I read in the um, recent interview you did with Third Sector is that um, you know you try you try and put a lot of emphasis on looking after your staff, but it can't be easy because you're 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 the big boss, but you're also very busy mm. as that boss. So how do you do that as a leader? How do you connect with your staff and and look after them? I guess because because what I haven't said there in asking that question is. They do need looking after in a place like this. There's mm. a lot of lot of strain and a lot of um, pressure, isn't there? At times, yes. I'm sure. Yes, it's a it's now a very compelling, fast-moving agency with 160 staff. Mm. I prided myself, and I worked very hard in the in the beginning in 2011 and 12 and 13. Uh, I knew everybody's everybody's name. I knew their history. It was very important to me if I'm leading from the front that I know who's next to me and they feel part of. We're all rowing in the same direction. Yeah. Um, I don't know everyone's name in the business now, and that you know it's disappointing for me. But I just simply can't. Yeah. How, so how do I, I manage? I do walk the. I do walk around the organisation a lot. That's that coming back to the points of being apparent and present and transparent. Mm. People know me by name. They're all new staff. Are always I'm introduced to them. Yeah. Uh, would try and go to their workspace as opposed to them coming into my office to meet the big boss. Yep. I try and take away those indices of I'm the boss and you do that you meet people in the tea room or you, mm. you meet them downstairs at reception mm -hmm. or uh, have coffee with them so mm. that's a very important thing for me to validate everybody in the organization um, I I do try and remember names although I, I'm not always greatly successful at that I have a really strong bench I mean I had to I as part of the transformation I realized in our old model there was a CEO and everybody else so it came, everybody was at ground level, and then everything came to the CEO. So the other thing about the turnaround was, I have to tip this triangle up the other way yeah. and have everybody empowered at the front line, and I'm their resource, so yeah. put me behind. So right. I think that's a really important thing too, that yeah. I, I like to stand behind them and say, I'm your ammunition, so when you need me, yeah. give us a bell. And that's a lot more efficient for me because now I've empowered people to act at the front line, and they can do their job 95% of the time, and then yep. when they need certainty or yeah. direction or advice. But you're unleashing potential, right? Oh, totally. Um, what we should say at this stage is that there's, um, you've got windows on your office, and I think people think there's been a leadership change because there's people looking in and wondering why I'm sat behind your desk. <laughs> <laughs> You're being interviewed to keep, see if you can keep your job. Um, so you talked about tipping up the triangle. So there's a whole bunch of other challenges, not just in, in, in the context we just spoke about. Um, involved in tipping up, you know, turn that, that triangle upside down. T tell me about some of the other challenges you faced when you came in and you re and you realised there's a lot of work to be done, but I'm I'm up for it. Yeah. Um, tell me if you so if you if you if you bear with me, go back in time again to yeah. that point where yeah. you've made that decision. How did you then go about that challenge? Because if you you had to put in place a whole new suite of services, there was cultural change, there's a whole bunch of other things. You're having difficult conversations with people. How did you approach that whole thing yeah. again as a leader? I didn't know, quite happy to say, I did not know where we needed to be, but I knew we needed to be away from the place where we were. So yeah. the first goal for me was, I thought we, we are going to be anachronistic or redundant in no time mm -hmm. if I don't move. Yeah. And I'm a really firm believer in when in doubt, take action. So you don't always know where you're gonna end up, but by taking the action, you then move and you get feedback universe will give you feedback. So mm -hmm. as long as you're moving, and I don't mean scattergun, I mean, I said to people, I'm not sure where we're going to end up, 
but I know I want you to move. So here's the ball, there's the line, please move. Mm -hmm. And in the first instance, if nobody, if the person didn't move, there wasn't much space for them in yep. the future. So I had to tidy the place up. I then looked at um, what are the couple of things that are really oh, like a hornet's nest here that are troublesome and I've got to get clear, the car mm. park. The, the the unfair allocation of car spaces. Yeah. And it's so, it sounds so silly, you know, when we've just completed a transformation of the business where it's gone from, it's increased its throughput tenfold in the yeah. last eight years. Yes. Yeah. And, and sorry, just to clarify for people listening, what you mean is, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're dealing with more than 10 times the number of um, let's clients, call them, and clients and beneficiaries. So we, are, we were serving correct. 750 families in 2011. And we supported ten and a half thousand beneficiaries this year. Yeah, wow. We had a budget of seven million, yeah. and we just hit a budget of twenty-one million. Yeah. So we've done that in in seven years, eight, yeah. eight nearly eight years. Um, I needed to be really clear about um, h how we were going to move. So we needed to. I, I didn't know exactly where we were going to end up, but I, I thought to myself, I know what transformation looks like. I've done it before with the netball organization. Mm. I did it before with the Asthma Foundation. Mm -hmm. So I knew what it might look like um, eventually. I said to myself, we're going to be a tier one charity because we weren't using our charitable status at all. Yeah. Um, we are going to be at the planning table because we are one of the most um, well-skilled in neurodevelopmental health issues agencies, and no one knows about us. We're going to be partnering with government in a way that really adds value to government because mm. governments aren't service providers. They've got problems, we have solutions. So yeah. we are going to be solution oriented at the planning table, a tier one charity doing outstanding work and, and um, appreciated by our clientele mm. and serving rural communities. So you, so you go about that, what, what you think back, what are you most proud of? Um, well, I fixed the car park. I, <laughs> the I, fixed, car park. I, I got a, I got a ballot <laughs> small in things for the can car. Be the big they things, did. Can't they? That was my point. Is first of all, fix up the small things. So we had um, the provision of uh, stationery to staff was really limited, and people needed pens and papers, you know, and they needed the feeling of freedom. So yeah. uh, everyone, you know, we loosened that system up. We got rid of the um, eight-year-old computers that had been donated to us mm -hmm. because we're a charity in inverted commas, yeah. um, because we probably needed second-hand computers. I said, no, stop it. Let's shift the whole level of, this is not okay. We're a business. Yeah. We're in the business of making money just like any other business. Yeah. It's just that that money will go absolutely and thoroughly and 100% back to the, our, our clients. Yeah. So let's ramp it up, people, and let's get very clear. We're in the business yeah. of making money. We're in the business of serving people. We're a public purpose agency. So I, mm -hmm. kept, I started using terminology so that people yeah. could hear a different story. We are a public purpose agency. We align with the needs of state governments. Yeah. Um, we are here to partner with communities. We will never go into communities un, uh, uninvited. So we're a partner in this together. Yep. And I started talking in that those ways. Well, I want to talk about your approach to partnership because I think there's something to, for people to learn there. But you also just said that you're a business. I agree. Most charities are businesses, the dividend just accrues to the community as opposed to a bunch of shareholders in a financial sense. Uh, but you know, that's, that is a, there is a bit of a conundrum there, that, that the idea that um, you're a charitable organisation receiving donations and yet you see yourself as a, as a business. Conundrum is probably not the right word, but a lot of people struggle to get their heads around the reconciliation there of being a charity and operating as mm. a business. 
It's absolutely essential, but tell, just explain that from your yeah. point of view, if you don't well, mind. Well, I think any healthy life has a degree of creative tension in it, and we, we do here as well, because we do have a health service that's a very legitimate, very leading, cutting-edge uh, paediatric health service, yeah. um, aligned with New South Wales health you know, standards and great clinical governance, but we also have the charitable mm. um, business that we are as well, and uh, th there's a lot of work that my team and I do with helping people understand the two cultures because if pe people come out of those two sectors separately, they often approach the world differently. So when you come in here, we, we, we help you understand it doesn't take very long, that you're here to gift. You will get paid for that, but you are here to gift. So mm -hmm. the expectation is that we will gift our healthcare services to people and gift a bit more of ourselves. So there will always yep. be something that comes from self Yep. as well as, as the service. And if I don't see that in my people, you know, we usually have some pretty serious chats yep. because that's what makes us different. The benevolence here mm. makes it very special. And that I see um, manifests itself in the way that you deal with potential supporters. Um, I think you call it friend raising, friend raising as opposed though. to fundraising. Tell us about that. So um, we... We set out very early. I went, one of, one of the first things I did, I rang up this chap I, I know, Richard Colbrand, and I said, Richard, I need you to come and help me. I have a wonderful opportunity here. I need to go make some friends. And Richard is one of the best people you could ever um, find who, who is good at making contacts with people. So then there was two of us. And I said, we, we have to make some contacts here because people in the bush think we're closed. Doctors in the bush aren't referring to us because they think the service isn't there anymore, mm -hmm. simply because they haven't seen us. Um, but also, we're a charity, and I don't actually don't want people donating small amounts of dollars. I actually want people to understand the cause. I really want them to understand what we're doing and, and feel that that's valid. So we created this um, sort of saying of, we'll go friend-raising rather than fundraising. Mm -hmm. So on the basis that friends, like you and I, we have a cup of coffee together. Yeah. You ring me up and say, I'm in Manly, can I come and have a chat? I've just had an idea. You'll ring me and say, I've just spoken to a mate of mine and you've got to meet him. I've mm. told him. So friends look after each other in that way. Yeah. And they also share when you know times are a bit tough. So I thought, I imagined a world where Royal OS has all these good friends around us. We have friends, we have good friends, and then we have a handful of really good friends yeah. who sit at the table, can sit with me and can really be critical friends, funding friends, but they're helping me drive the business and they're my partners as well. So mm. we've sought to friend raise and from our friend raising naturally will come the fundraising if people yep. have the means because not everybody has the means to give money, but they do have sometimes the means to give time. Yeah. So on Monday mornings and Wednesday mornings now in here, we have lovely friends come in and they sit with our families to put our families at ease who right. have come from really remote communities. Um, you want you want people to give their time, their money and their hearts and their souls really sometimes, mm. I think, in a business mm. like ours. Yeah. But respectfully, I have to manage that like a resource. So my volunteers, I treat them like, um, like employees, really. Yeah. They have objectives, they know what they want to come here for, we look after them. Um, so the friend raising has been very successful for us and we're mm. very honest because I'm not going to ask you to be my friend if I'm not going to look after you. Right. So Royal Forest has a very good reputation now for being a good partner 
Yeah, so it's a two-way. It's very much a two-way thing. It's, it's we talk. It's not, be, it's not be a friend so you can help us out. It's be a friend and we'll. we'll it's help absolutely each other out. a friend, a proper um, reciprocal friendship. And yeah. for that, I often say we'll talk about um, a handshake with you, David, not mm -hmm. a handout. Mm -hmm. I don't want a handout. And it's very easy for some of our, you know, some corporate um, people or government people who aren't used to the charitable sector and who aren't used to how incredibly nimble we can be. Mm. It's very easy for some people to be patronizing towards our sector yeah. to do that hand handout business or expect that we're going to be handout and there's some charities that also don't do the sector any justice by just wanting the handouts yeah. it's yeah. a one-way process and I've always been a really fierce advocate of this sector I'm I'm absolute champion for third sector and I often say to corporates I think you'd do well to have a, a good non-profit leader on your board because we make yeah. we know how to make money out of nothing so yeah you know, we had we know how to be resourceful and and then make it not out of shareholders' funds, but out of absolutely. Not, absolutely I'm probably not. repeating myself because I might have said this before on a, on a previous episode. But in New Zealand, in the Vero Insurance Company building, I saw this. You know, in Auckland, I saw this um, thing written on the wall once, and it was, it was um, an indigenous leader, a female leader, who'd, who'd put this saying up on the wall, and it was, um, we didn't have any money, so we had to think. And I think that the sec that, that there's an awful lot of innovation. In, in this sector for that reason. Um, the resources aren't always there, but the um, resourcefulness yes. is there. And I think it's a myth, isn't it? Um, yes, there are good and bad charities, but there are good and bad for-profit companies. And I've worked at lots of places where it's stuffed full of bureaucracy and things just don't get done. Yeah. Well, I, um, in my early life, I was a physio, I was a neurological rehab physio. And I had to, my job was to look at typically young men who'd jumped into swimming pools that were empty and broken their neck or their back and work with them and say, you know, do a really thorough analysis of what, what level are you? Are you going to walk again? Are you going to be a wheelchair? Are you going to go home? A real problem solving. Yep. And, and then have a can-do attitude. A strength space, you can do this, not you can't. Mm -hmm. So I think that's always been pivotal. We are a very strength-based business here is we can do this. Yep. And we'll go to the hard places first rather than the easy places because that's our job. Yeah. And from that, you get people that want to, that, that admire and respect that. So mm. they want to come with you. And if I could use, can I use an example of, of one sure. company that, that's really been wonderful in trusting us? In the early, very early days um, of our telecare, when we were sampling our telecare, I wanted to trial the speech pathologies, um, putting their own technology, what they were doing face to face. And I really wanted to shore up the concept, evaluate it, so that I could then go to a funder and say, here's the evidence. We didn't want to go to funders and say, could you please fund us to have a go at something? We yep. said, we've got skin in the game. We'll drive this. We'll do it. We'll achieve it. Get a model. Um, so I spoke with Bupa um, at the time, and Bupa listened very carefully to us, and they appreciated my what I was trying to do was really be innovative in an old charity. And they gave us money. They gave us... Um, substantial amount of money at the time to evaluate our first te telecare trial. Mm. And I saw Annette recently, the head of the foundation, the Bupa Foundation, and I thanked her um, at this function we were at and I said, I want you to understand that your, if I, can I mention the uh, amount? So absolutely. your 80,000 that mm. allowed us to fully and thoroughly and comprehensively evaluate this first trial, mm. that enabled us to show the success and the outcomes and the impact, mm -hmm. um, in May of this year, the federal government uh, awarded us $20 million to expand our telecare program. So, for 
from your initial belief in us yeah. to give us money at the back end. It wasn't the fancy front end to show this money's going to the yeah. kids and I'll get credit for it. It was a very humble gift to say, yes, we'll support your evaluation because if this works, we believe it. Mm. And I, I wanted to say thank you to say the leverage mm. has been extraordinary. A bad return on investment. That's very, that's very good funding because um, loads of people in the sector will tell you that um, one of the frustrations is that many, many funders only want to do the sexy stuff. Yeah. They don't want to do the stuff at the end. It's, it's really right? hard. Yeah. So it's, it's great funding, obviously an amazing um, re return on investment. I want to ask you about that from a different angle. Um, how did you feel, you said it was a lot of money and 80,000 is a lot of money. How did you feel about asking for that? Because asking for, for a large amount of money mm. makes a lot of people in the charitable sector feel uncomfortable. Um, and they don't even necessarily know how to ask. And they might ask for less than they really need, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. how was that for you? Um, I have always been a person that I don't um, dress things up in fluff. And I, yeah. that's how I am if I'm talking to staff. They know really clearly where I am. Mm -hmm. And so on that, we spoke to the company about what we were doing, very clear on what our plan was. We rolled it out in a documented form. And I mean, you've got to, you've got to let people on the other side decide whether they want to do business with you, don't do it. You've mm. got to show yourself. And I think a lot of, um, a lot of business transactions are done on relationships. So mm. uh, being honest, being upfront, walking away from money if you don't want the money is really important too. I've always said we won't take money if it doesn't yep. go to what we need. We'll never just chase money pots. That's just the wrong thing. Do the right thing and the money will come. I'm a really firm believer in that. So I needed to ask for $80,000 because I needed $80,000. <laughs> I didn't yeah. need 60 and a piece yep. of fluff. I needed $80,000. So mm. they didn't fund a marginal extra bit. Yeah. They funded our evaluation. Yeah. And I'm so proud that it's it's come back mm. for us, for the government, and also for that company that chose to invest in us. I think you gave an insight into your approach to partnerships and corporate partnerships, uh, for example, there in that story, and that you said you gotta let people work out whether they wanna do business with you. I think the idea it's doing business, and it's a business proposition, mm. um, built on a relationship maybe, but nonetheless mm. a business proposition. Um, is a really important insight. And I want to go from corporate support to government support. You've done very well with government support. Uh, it's another area where lots of people in the charitable space <coughs> um, struggle because they don't know how government works. They don't know how to talk to government. They don't know how to think about it, uh, how to engage and so on. You, you, what can you tell us about what you've learned dealing with government, particularly when you go to them looking for some type of support? Um, I think that a really important place to start is to respect, one has to respect what the government is there to do. And um, governments are there to make policy and make provision for things that make communities better and, and in fact give us some more civil society. Now not always are the decisions, you know, would they accord with their own personal view, but I have always had a view that governments are very important as are and corporates and the third sector. So if Nirvana is, you see that those three sectors working well together, which is how I see Nirvana, then work out what your relationships will be. So mm. I'm, uh, I've always been um, comfortable going to a government because I need its help, but I also go with something. It's that two-way thing again is, I've got something that I think could work, mm. and they ask you questions. Understanding who the bureaucrats are as well as ministers, I mean, there's a temptation for, sometimes for people to want to go to the top, go to the 
minister, who's the most important person. Yeah. And of course, ministers flick things back to bureaucrats, <laughs> and ministers often <coughs> can't move unless the bureaucrats support it. So you learn early that it's the bureaucrats who you really need to have understand the program and the implementation and the funding, yeah. and let them do scrutiny. So I'll always give people more detail than less to allow them to interrogate it. And I learned very early from an old computer salesman I worked with, um, he, he disclosed a lot of information and he used to say, because pe people in sales are often secretive about what you can tell the client and, you know, and he, he used to disclose almost everything and he said, what's the worst that can happen? They know, they'll, they'll ask you more, th you disclose more, they'll ask you more, you find out more about them. So the more you find right. out about them, the more you know how to pitch to them. So you <coughs> want them to, to talk to you and yep. you want to learn about them. Um, and he was a wily salesman, but mm. isn't that a, a story about life too? Mm -hmm. Is like, I want to mm. know about you and if I'm going to work with you, yep. the more I know about how to align with your needs yeah. and your interests, well, the more fun we're likely to have. Yeah. I actually don't want to play with you, David, if you don't have values like mine, yeah. if you're going to work at a level that um, doesn't reflect the sort of standards I because the relationship will sour. Yeah. We're not going to be able to sustain that. But yeah. So finding um, the people who really make the decisions in government, and it's often not ministers. Mm. Um, junior ministers and the, the uh, chiefs of staff are really important people to keep apprised. I proactively call those people, mm. not with a problem. I call them when something good happens. I let them know, I reflect with a, a, a case study, in this case of our telecare, I'll mm. make sure that the chief of staff in Canberra gets that lovely story. They can do with it whatever they like. Mm. But you know what? They often don't get out of Canberra and get to the front line. So that yeah, giving right. people real life examples. That is really interesting because uh, I have a lot of conversations where I talk to charities that raise money um, from philanthropists about the need to go back to the philanthropist who's given you the money and share stories and thank them without asking for more money and get to get that ratio right because there's too much asking for the next dollar. So what I haven't heard before is someone applying that same kind of principle to their government relations. You're taking the good news stories back to them without a pitch. They're human. It's a relationship it's and a you're relation giving it back yeah. in the relationship, and which is also smart. It, it's very smart business. Yeah. But you can't be um, anything other than, you know, it's quite yeah. honest as well, but it's, but it's, yeah, it's, it's calculating in some ways uh, as well yeah. because it's, um, it's thinking about that person and mm -hmm. standing in their shoes. That's something yep. my yep. my father told me. Two very <laughs> special things that have stayed with me um, is stand in the shoes of others, sweetheart, before you open your mouth. Mm. And then remember you've got two ears and one mouth, <laughs> so use them in that proportion. <laughs> right, so listen yeah. to people and listen to what they tell you before you talk. And yeah. talk in that, you know, talk half as much as you listen mm. and you'll hear what people have to tell you. Now, a um, couple, couple of final questions, a um, bit more about you. Um, looking, at, lo looking at your career today, you've got rounded experience. You mentioned um, the physiotherapy, which helped you presumably learn how to manipulate people. But <laughs> joking good, apart, um, I should leave the jokes alone, shouldn't I? It's terrible. Uh, but also that Netball Australia CEO, um, and you took, took under your leadership uh, Australia went back to being world champions. What did you learn from that? Because I'm thinking you've got you've got a very rounded experience. What did mm. you learn from different things? What, what did you learn? So, uh, so I went from, uh, and I, I think the thing that drove me, when I again think about those those steps that I went through, um, is the I, I did have an inner inner desire to influence, 
And so as a physio, I was one-on-one -on -one with clients. Mm. And that was, I loved my career in physio, but it wasn't enough. I didn't want to grow old to be 70 and 70s old, but um, to grow old in that career, only influencing one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. So I went well, good people, sk people skills, right? You learn, learn about people, I guess. P people skills early. Yeah. Um, I wanted more leverage. So then right. I, I taught. Yeah. I, I went into the university and I lectured in the university and that was one to many students. Mm. And then I thought, no, it's, it's got to be bigger in the system. I went to the hospital accreditation body and started the education unit there where I taught hospital administrators across the country how to get their hospitals accredited. Well, that was, inf that was a lot of influence. But then I thought... I'm actually interested in hospitals, so I joined the Hospitals Planning Design Authority and learned how to, you design hospitals and how you build them and construct mm, okay. them, fit them out. So I was starting to get this whole of health, mm. I mean a really big whole of health. Then I thought, well, I don't have any money experience here and people in business don't see health people as true business people, we're yep. a bit soft. So I joined the computer industry, I carried a bag, <laughs> I learned how to do big system sales in the telecommunications business as well as health. I learned some very, um, if I could say, hoary, you know, lessons from people about street street craft mm. with, you know, old school salespeople. Mm -hmm. I learned my skills from physiotherapy made me a consultative salesperson, mm. how to listen and how to find solutions. That was really effective. But then I thought I, I didn't, I wasn't put on the earth to just sell computers or make money. Yeah. I was much more motivated by that, going back to my early life of, you know, community. Yeah. So I, I ran the Physiotherapy Association. That was a member-based association mm. in New South Wales. I then ran the Asthma Foundation and that was turning that around to be a very dynamic enterprise. And then when the Netball Australia job came up, I thought, oh my gosh, this is so wonderful. This is health and sport coming together. Um, it was in disarray in that we, Australia had lost the World Cup. It's a bit like rugby now, you know, everybody's down on rugby right yep. now. What's happened, oh dear, oh me, you know, the tragedy, Australia's not winning. Um, that was a whole of culture shift. I had to start, you know, everything. I mm. had to start with people, culture, sponsors, TV, ABC had taken us off the prime time because uh, they weren't getting the viewing audience. They put us on at 11 o'clock in the morning when I said to them, but guess where people are who are going to watch netball? They're playing netball. That's a silly decision. Um, and I really had to get political. I had to get tough. Mm. I had to really challenge people. Um, at very senior levels. I remember being in the first Australia-New Zealand test over in New Zealand. I was just terrified being in what they call the snake pit over there. Mm -hmm. New Zealand puts netball on at seven o'clock on a Saturday night and bumps rugby, it's so popular. <laughs> and we lost that night and uh, it was just a horrifying, I'm thinking I'm representing Australia and there are about three gold jerseys here and nothing else. <laughs> um, but that was really, I had to really d reach deep into who I was to stand up against a very strong trend of we're not going to change this sport. We're going to have it the way it's always been. But the sport of netball was quite, uh, it, it needed to change. Mm. And it needed to become open and progressive. And you can see what it is today. It's mm. become really a world game. Um, but, you know, that takes a lot of personal courage to do. And it, I needed a lot of people to support me. Quietly, I trusted a lot of people. Mm. I had to take some punts that were dangerous, you know, mm -hmm. at the time. Or, but, you know, when you're a leader and you're out front, you have to make those decisions. Mm. You don't always know what to do, but I had to put my parachute on and jump. Yeah, make action, sure like you say, you gotta, you got to do things. you got to go, yeah. because you get feedback. If you stand still <laughs> and equivocate, you get run over. Just to finish, we're talk, talking about action, but then I just want to kind of think about being a bit more reflective. So you, you had time out, you did the walk. I'm interested in what's the value of time out 
you know, because you're busy, 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 but you've got to stop and reflect, you've got to think. So I'm interested in um, the value of time out, and I'm interested in how and when you think. Um, I've been eight years, a little bit over eight years now, on a constant, constant transformation yeah. of the business, but also we had a $41 million construction of a new building to do at the same time. Yeah. And so that's been very challenging. I didn't have the ch chance to take lots of time off in between there because we had these two challenges that con conspired together, yeah. come together. Um, in reflection, if I had of, I would have probably liked to have taken a bit more time along that path, but we, it was just coincidence, we didn't have enough capacity in the business until I built it. Yeah. We've now built capacity in the business and I've just taken a holiday. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm making sure that I'm looking after my senior team and mm. they don't have to go through what I chose yep. to go through. Yeah. But that, that, that thinking time, and in fact, I was just talking to one of my execs this morning planning next year, and we've planned that she has to have one day a week that she's calling her thinking day. Right. Because that's where your restoration comes. It's where mm -hmm. those... Um, when people aren't at you, when you're not thinking systems, when yeah. you're not thinking about delivery, something will just arise. Pops. It pops, doesn't yeah. it? And yeah. then you know, I know what I have to do. Yeah. And if you don't create those times, whether they're walking to Shelley Beach from here or, mm. but they're not putting in urgent appointments. And it's really, I can't emphasize enough now how important that is to make sure that you protect yourself as a leader. And you put around, so you put a space around yourself mm. for some time, you put, a handful of very trusted people around you. You, I think good leaders will share and they will make personal disclosures um, because if you're not hearing yourself say out loud the things that frighten you, mm. you keep them inside and they get spooky. Mm. And leaders who start to get spooked get, uh, are a bit frightening to other people. Other people can choose to be frightened because they're not sure what the boss is thinking. Yeah. I, th I would much prefer that my staff could say, oh boy, you know, we know where she is today, or yeah. great, you know, we, we see, they know when I'm excited, they know when we've got a challenge. Yeah. Um, I'm the first person to ring the bell when we when we get a gift and show people, I'm exhilarated. Every gift is, is a gift, and keep refreshing it and keep yourself fresh, and so leaders have to do that. And if you're stale and grumpy, you've got to get out of the way. Well, I think you're going to be stale and grumpy if you keep talking to me because I'm keeping you from the Christmas party. The Christmas party. We so you've got to have a bit of fun with the staff there. But um, I want to thank you as we wrap it up. Thanks. You've obviously achieved amazing things. It's been a great year for you too. And um, wish you the very best of luck with everything you're doing. And of course, I hope you have a good night at the Christmas party, although not too good. David, thank you. No, we'll be very, we're very demure at our Christmas party. Um, <laughs> and I'd just like to say thank you to you and, uh, you know, the team behind you because recognition like what I've received this year is a wonderful and thrilling personal um, accolade I suppose but you just mm. you don't get there on your own you know that I know that the listeners know that I have such a strong bench behind me that have helped me get there and often it is the leader that gets the accolades but it's all the people behind that have actually done the hard yards lifting, or trusted yeah. you so um, being recognized is is a treat and I I do honour it, thank you, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to other people. I also am very happy to talk to people, and it's nice to share the stories, isn't it? Because we're all on a journey. It is, yeah, and it's a great journey, and, and that you've led the organisation on long may it continue. So, um, well done, and thanks again. Thank you. That's it for this episode of How I Did It. For more from Coda, visit codacapital.com or email philanthropy at codacapital.com. <laughs>